Back then, it was one of the things, but we had cans of beans, danger, danger. We, we had peanut butter and jam. Uh, fecal pellets, so uh, going out and collecting uh, fecal pellets, running DNA on those. Hey, okay, I was going to ask that. Yeah. I haven't heard of that one. That's interesting. Yeah, that's something that's... I'd want to be paid a little extra for that summer job, but, <laughs> yeah. but you know, I, I can see the importance of it. It's the dream job. It's like being a, a, a full-time photographer in Antarctica, right? Or Alaska, Yukon. Yeah. You better love penguins. Yeah. <laughs> penguins and sea lions. Yeah. You know, a whole other side of this whole citizen science stuff is to, um, you know, get folks involved and engaged in wildlife management. Welcome to Wild and Exposed, another podcast from the Northern Rockies. And today is a special edition. We have a guest on the show, and I have known him, we've well, for a lifetime, his lifetime, not mine. They're about... They're not quite the same duration. I'm not that much older. There's a bit of a difference there. One would argue. Yes, sorry. And I've known uh, Luke Vandervenen for a long, long time, since he was four or five, and uh, watched him grow up into a young man. We traveled together to some wilderness places and had some grand adventures in the far north, and he's studied wildlife biology at the same university I attended and so is belongs to the same alma mater, and he went on further to get his master's degree and is now a wildlife biologist in the field, and I am humbled for his age and the amount of experience he's had with various species of wildlife, and he's doing exceptionally well in this field and is extremely knowledgeable, especially for someone in their late 20s. My hat's off to the experiences he's had during his career so far, and he's going to share some insights today into the excitement of being a professional wildlife biologist, and he's a good photographer to boot, too. We've had some fun that way. And uh, welcome, Luke. Thank you. Thank you. I think at least for the photography stuff, that's mostly just because we've been standing side by side for those. So just kind of... <laughs> well, <laughs> hold on. <laughs> the product of association, I think. Okay. That's very nice of you to say, <laughs> but that's not necessarily the fact. <laughs> so one time, we were on Caribou in Alaska. We are in central Alaska, and I think we just finished with this kind of mature over the hill bull moose yeah he's kind of cranky i think and we had remember well a little bit not too much we had we had fun with him but he walked away right Mm. we can't keep up with the bull moose on the tundra and and i was taking a break because well you'd spotted a herd of caribou that were maybe half a mile away below us and it looked like it was all females yeah yeah it looked like it was all just a group of cows and but you hadn't had much experience at that time this is many years ago now with caribou, so you you wanted to go get pictures of whatever yeah, was happening. Yeah, at that point, I think I had maybe maybe three photos total of caribou, so I was still... Game on. Game on, and yeah. had just had breakfast, so I figured I'd go chase <laughs> me down. <laughs> and so what happened is you disappear, you're heading down the tundra, and you, and you get a few hundred yards, or maybe a little more away from me, and then this majestic bull comes around the corner, and you get this great action shot of this bull, his front leg in motion, his head back, and... So I just wanted to point out that little story because I had nothing to do with that and you got an amazing photo that I've seen in a few different places. Um, I've seen it at your parents and at your place done it big and it's good. So great eye, great composition. So hats off on, on the photography stuff that well, way thank too. You for that. Hold on, did you get to stay with him or did you just get that one opportunity? Uh, I got a couple in a pretty quick series, but they uh, they were kind of on the move and they're a lot faster than I am, so... Um, and you're a tall dude, so you, I got you long can legs. put some miles on, I'm sure, and, and you can't keep up with the moose no. or the caribou, right? No, that's for sure. 
Luke's a good tundra walker for sure. You have to high step it up there because of the willows and right. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've got yeah, that. Yeah, Ron, you that's, and I are going to have an that's issue. a problem. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's where we need that magic carpet. I keep talking about. <laughs> yeah, especially up there because you know the ground has like four inches of moss on it. It's like walking on a treadmill. So combination of that and having to step over willows and brush and everything is. Well, let me ask you: when you were on this like, expedition with Mark, what was the? Uh, food situation like because he tends to eat like about a question like yeah spaghettios out of a can so, no, see this no, is something no. that i didn't understand at the time i was working at like a camping and outfitting store so we had all this gear and you know backcountry stoves and you know ready-made meals so you just got to add boiling water to right no mark wasn't having none of that so no, no. so <laughs> for I, honestly i didn't for know about that stuff at that time <laughs> i didn't i use that now do you yeah okay we did a trout fishing trip three weeks ago and we lived off that stuff aside all right. from when we actually caught trout well yeah but yeah, yeah. um when we didn't have trout yeah so i, yeah. I would do that now so just to, in my defense, i, I can no longer i can't look a can of cold ravioli in the face anymore <laughs> right after that trip <laughs> when i first met mark that was uh, the deal I, I like so we would do these these trips and i've been you know i've been doing this for a long time right so you learn a lot over the yeah. years and i yeah. i happened to shoot with this couple for a, a summer and they were making like these really awesome meals out in the bush you know we would be like in a volkswagen westphalia camper van so they had the stove and we had a fridge and but we'd be out in nowhereville alaska right and we would have like uh burritos one night the next night we might have like spaghetti and or fettuccine and yeah, and it's yeah. all simple stuff if you just think about what to pack. And so I got into that mode, right? So the first year I met Mark, we were made, you know we pre-made all our meat and took it with us and had it frozen. Then we'd thaw it and you know we'd make burritos. We'd make, you know, for breakfast you'd have like a breakfast burrito. You could make a burrito. We would have, have more than one kind of burrito going even. Yeah, wow. we would have wow. all this really good food. No, and then that's just Mark's absurd. out there. That's when we started to become friends, I guess. <laughs> 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 you look at his like box of food and it's cans of ravioli. Yeah. Hold on. There were there were those apples and bananas and carrots and No, you are good about your veggies. Yeah. I know. will agree. You do. And you always have your vitamins. Vitamins. Yeah, the, you always the have chewable, a chewable vitamins. vitamin with you. <laughs> yeah. When we're traveling. It's just tradition. It's one of those little things that reminds me I'm out in the field. Start right. the day with a little gummy vitamin. Right. I don't know. It's a happy moment. You know, the other thing, too, from that trip, food-related, is those little Starbucks, like the chilled uh, latte, frappuccinos or whatever. Anytime I see those in a store, I'm reminded of that trip. Okay. Because well, we didn't bring a stove with us, and that was the coffee so that we had. So you got Starbucks, frappuccinos, and Chef Boy RD. That's right. <laughs> Are your co-pilots. Well, I, I, the Chef Boy RD is not so much a part of my menu anymore, but back then <laughs> it was one of the things. But we had cans of beans, danger, danger. <laughs> we we had peanut butter and jam. I have this great video of a trip when I took my son to this remote area, and uh, we dished on a, a – and he still laughs at it when I play this video, why I bring it up. We had this amazing morning with this moose, and we hiked back to the truck, and, and he was making lunch. And I was filming it for memory's sake for father and son. And, and uh, I was explaining that uh, – the. The Rubbermaid tub that he was making a sandwich on is also our boot rack, and he's making it. He starts spooning out the jam onto his peanut butter sandwich, and I said, save some of that for your father. You know, at the end of the video, it was pretty funny. So I have peanut butter and jam on bread and stuff, but yeah, it's, that's not really... I switched that now, though. I don't do the peanut butter and jam. I'm more granola and, and uh, power bar stuff, because you can just hike with that and pull it out of the pocket and keep going. But yeah, you guys have thrown me under the bus a little bit here, but... <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I can't I, believe you I worked at a, a, back in the day. <laughs> at a shop like that and had access to all this stuff. And then yeah. he's, he's, he's like well, rolling out. He maybe thought I was going to, we were going to pack that stuff. But wait, in my defense. In, I mean, in your defense. We did go to the store where you probably could have found that stuff. Yeah, yeah, very much so. I mean, these large. Very much so. And, I mean, we were definitely a lot quicker on our feet for not having to set up a stove. And Oh, that you was know. a problem. Right. We weren't boiling water, so it wouldn't have worked so well they don't really <laughs> it doesn't become a meal in 10 minutes in cold water like well water, yeah right or will it i don't try so. that it does not i wouldn't no. i certainly no. wouldn't recommend right. it it right. might do it overnight yeah but right. i mean there you go i mean to your point though i mean most of the times when we were working animals was morning and evening right which is mm-hmm. right when you want to be eating of course so it's you know, fast yeah yeah having those those prepped meals even if it's out of a can it's quick that was my thinking, because the days are long, we want to make the most of it, we're active. When we get back to camp, we're tired. Yeah. And so yeah. the whole thing about getting a stove out and camp, making a meal and taking an hour to do that wasn't part of my agenda, I apologize, Hey. in, in hindsight. but Not in the you know, slightest. Yeah. yeah. I had a plethora of wild blueberries available for you. It, and I appreciated that. <laughs> yeah, they're ready laid out all across the tundra. All across the tundra. You just <laughs> follow the moose or caribou and blueberries will be under your feet right yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, a special trip. Awesome experience. And uh, one of the highlights of that trip, I, I even started a chapter in my moose book of our, our fun. That was one of the best actual mating sequences with moose, with a tending cow and, and an impressive bull. Mm-hmm. was with you and, and uh, you'd spotted the cow and or actually spotted a moose rump disappearing mm-hmm. as we rounded this back dirt road into the timber and, and then we decided to hike and see what it was and we were I think there was there was a calf was it wasn't there or was it just a pair I, th- I think it might have just been the pair okay so the bull tended the cow but the, the images we were able to get when they went into the spruces when he had his wallow and she went into the wallow and mm-hmm. she was bellowing underneath mm-hmm. him and, and tending and that was a great afternoon that was, and I think that was our first day there, if I remember. No, right. no. Or was that a different one? That was a different one. Okay. Yeah. So, for our listeners, I don't. This is something that's kind of always been between Luke and I, but he is a good luck charm on my wildlife trips, and every trip I've taken him on has proven to be very productive and phenomenal. So, we made it to for no reason of my doing. Let's make that clear. Well, I just show up. I, I, the end result uh, is all good. But it, the funny thing was, you know, some of these places, it takes years and years to get the kind of images that Luke and I had on his first night out. And we made it to central Alaska. That's where this trip, the same trip, took place. And uh, within an hour of getting to our camp, to the destination, we found a bull moose that was tending a cow and were able to photograph them in a way that we were able to get full frame shots comfortably. And he actually... Made it with the cow, and and the evening light was spectacular. Yeah, beautiful fall colors and was popping. And I, so I want to thank you for the good luck because I have sold images from that <laughs> evening again and again and again to various publications, uh, different images from that evening. And and but the, here's the thing: is you just assume, given it's your first trip there, that oh, oh hey, every night's exactly going right. to be like this. So for me, that was just like, oh, welcome to Alaska. This is what it is every day. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> But, I mean, to your credit, you pretty much provided something similar or, you know, a, a, a like experience pretty much every day that we were out there. So It was a good trip. That was a really yeah. good trip. Well, yeah. and that's the beautiful thing about Alaska, right, is 
it's pretty hard to get skunked. Mm. It's pretty hard to. You do have days where you, you don't do have the but days, but then they, then it comes around and you have a day where you have two or three encounters that provide great images and experiences. So, yeah. Um, when you get into remote areas like that, where animals just mm-hmm. you know, don't see people, yep. or have no reason to be fearful because Fear. they just don't—it's too remote. Mm-hmm. Right? So anyway, a lot of opportunity. So those were fun, and we did bears before that trip, and had a lot of fun with black bears. And uh, then you went on, you know, and school got busy, and 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 didn't, you know, with being in school at that time, it's hard for you to pull up mm-hmm. in the fall when I Tough traveled timing, for a lot yeah. of those. But um, then you went on to have your own experiences with your, with your master's degree, and that was very interesting, right? At least from where I looked at it. Sorry. Before you go too far that far, just what's your history? Why? Why? What is the interest with wildlife? How did you develop that? What? It's a good question. You know, like I, folks ask me that from time to time, and I really don't have much of an answer for them. You know, I've, it's just something that I've always been interested in for one way or another you know i grew up in town my family we went camping you know for a week or two every year but uh you know neither of my folks are really you know super wildlife inclined or anything like that but it's just something that i've always been interested in and has always been kind of ingrained in me um and it's just always the path that i've followed why that is i don't know but and then do you have a preference i mean is would you be just as happy down on the equator doing tropical things or do you like the north or is is there a preference or do you just like being outdoors with wildlife well i like being outdoors with wildlife i'm a sucker for charismatic megafauna so you know like your moose your elk your bears your you know all the big stuff uh so you know i've never worked down somewhere tropical or or anything like that but you know anywhere where i can work with with big mammals yeah sign me up so you're kind of in that perfect spot yeah yeah, you know, and, and right now, living where I do, working where I do, doing the job that I do, um, you know, we've got all kinds of different wildlife species that uh, that we have across our landscape and that we help manage, and it's uh, it's a pretty cool place to be, for sure. So just to be clear to our listeners, then, you're the wildlife biologist for a region of northern Alberta, Canada. Yeah, yeah, so I work as a wildlife biologist. There's several of us that cover kind of the uh, a chunk of, of northern Alberta there. We cover maybe... 20% of Alberta or so, something like that. But across that that 20% of Alberta, we've got, you know, we've got bison, we've got moose, caribou, elk, whitetails, mule deer, grizzly bears, black bears, you know, we've got all kinds of stuff. If you ever get tired of working on one specific species or project or something, there's always something else that, that we can go, go do. So, you know, there's lots of different challenges of working in a landscape that big and that diverse keeps it interesting it does there's there's so much wilderness in that part of canada and it's it's such a dynamic ecosystem and and probably a a variety of habitat and species so you know Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. and then i mean within alberta we have quite good working relationships with our colleagues in other areas and so um you know a couple years ago one of uh, my colleagues that works down south got sick sometime during the winter he just had a flu or something like that um, and they were just about to go out and fly sheep surveys. So I, you know, la- kind of last minute piled into the machine and got to go bomb around in the mountains for a while counting sheep and seeing goats and all this kinds is, of this stuff. This is spinning ahead a little quick for me here. I'm getting a little dizzy with the rotors already because I want to cover that stuff in more detail. Yeah. Because you have so much fun of it and it's such a significant part of your professionally. But I think we should dial back just a, just a minute to to your education and some of the experiences you've had 
professionally along the way before you got to this point because it's it's impressive to me and so um i think it's something our, our listeners would enjoy hearing how you got to where you are especially at such a young age but your experience in my opinion and from what i've seen you know far surpasses a lot of people who have been in your professional much longer because of the different areas you've worked in and the different species that you've actually literally handled and and observed so if we if we go back to your your masters i mean that was very interesting because in ontario where that took place you know the caribou population was something that was required more research and and it was a species of concern and especially since then across north america it's mm-hmm. more of a concern now mm-hmm. with population issues but it was kind of on the, the cusp of that yeah so i um i mean like you said i've been extremely fortunate in uh both my educational experience and my professional experience. And it's it's kind of amazing how things kind of lined up for me. I, I attribute very little of it to, to skill and ability and a lot of it to just luck and timing. But um, for my master's, I uh, I was fortunate enough to go work with, um, with wolves up in northern Ontario. It was kind of part of a, a larger caribou research program, as you said. Um, but I got to be involved with, with the kind of on-the-ground wolf research of stuff. And we had, uh, yeah, a whole whole pile of, uh, of collared wolves out there, different wolf packs, I think, over the course of the study. Um, pulling numbers from kind of thin air here, but we had over 60 wolves with GPS collars at certain points throughout the study. Um, and, uh, yeah, I got to be uh, fairly, quite largely involved with the actual capture and collaring work um, that we did on some of that stuff. Um, got to, you know, check out a lot of their kill sites and snow tracking of wolf packs and that kind of thing. Um, and then from there, you know, <coughs> but wasn't yeah. the purpose of that with all the wolf research to see how often they're preying on actual caribou versus yeah. other species like moose or yeah. So that was that was the kind of primary intent of the wolf research that we were doing. Um, the one of the interesting things that that came from that, and it wasn't new information. I mean, it's certainly been kind of well known for a little while, but. Um, we were so what we were doing is we were putting GPS collars on uh, on these wolf packs, and then we were going and visiting sites where they spent a lot of time, where presumably they had killed something. Uh, and what we expected was we expected to find, you know, certainly some level of caribou within within those kill sites that we found. Um, at least from what we were able to discover in the field, the vast majority of those kill sites were moose. Um, you know, it's possible that we missed some of, well, it's probable, I suppose, that we missed um, some caribou kills because the wolves would be done at those kill sites and they have eaten it all and left quicker than we would have picked up within our kind of search algorithms. Um, but from a wolf perspective, at least from what we were able to tell from that collaring data, the caribou were not that big of a deal for them. They relied predominantly on moose. And this is generally quite well known, you know, across... Um, across their uh, their kind of uh, shared range. Um, but from a caribou perspective, even though wolves were only kind of picking off caribou here and there, from a caribou perspective, that was really important for that population. Um, so, so my work directly um, ended up largely being focused on wolves and moose because from a wolf perspective, that was what mostly mattered. Um, but from a caribou perspective, it was kind of the inverse. And these were woodland caribou? Yeah. And the population... Yeah size was there an estimate of what what was existing in ontario i guess it was too remote to really get a handle on that yeah caribou are or particularly woodland caribou are incredibly difficult to census um, what is typically done is we um, put a bunch of collars on um, 
cow caribou and female caribou. And then we monitor those, those collars every year to estimate uh, annual survival rates. Um, when we combine that with annual visits, uh, generally kind of late winter, um, we do these annual surveys where we go and we, we get a visual check on the collar to make sure everything's still fine, but also to try and count how many calves we see within the animals that we do see. So we can get a measure of recruitment rate or how many uh, juveniles are getting recruited into the population. And so when we combine the survival rate of the females of the population with the recruitment rate or the, you know, of course, the young that are coming into the population, we can kind of track the demographic pattern of that population through time. But to get an actual population estimate is much more difficult. There's a few ways, well, there's kind of one primary way right now that um, that folks are trying to do that with uh, fecal pellets. So uh, going out and collecting uh, fecal pellets, running DNA on those. Hey, okay, I was going to ask that. Okay. Yeah. I haven't heard of that one. That's interesting. Yeah, that's something that I'd want to be paid a little extra for that summer job, but <laughs> yeah. but you know I, I can see the importance of it. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, for times. sure. It w there's been uh, several of those surveys that have been done here in Alberta. Um, the results are still pending, I think, but uh, we're we're really hopeful that that's a way that we can actually get a, a, an actual uh, estimate of population size for some of these for some of these populations because they're really difficult to find from the air and to do an actual you know aerial count like we right. would for moose or deer or something like right. that in the winter yeah mm -hmm. you know and, and i, I want to thank you because i mean i wish there were there were more and more wildlife biologists out there that were able to do this because these populations are so important and it's just you know something that i think in modern times people don't invest enough in governments don't invest enough in and and uh, and therefore it's hard to have a handle on what's going on mm -hmm. um i want to just quickly uh for our listeners' sake, and and out of some of my own curiosity as well, touch on the radio callers a bit because I know, and we've talked about this before, but there's a there's been a big change in radio callers. I mean, 20 years ago, it was common practice to put radio callers on various species of mammals in North America, primarily to figure out their home range, how far they travel, what's required for habitat for existence of these animals of a moose or an elk versus a bear or a wolf, uh, what's their home range, and that was done by radio telemetry mm -hmm. and it required actually being physically close to the caller mm -hmm. with a receiver whether it be in a fixed-wing aircraft or on the ground and then listening to the pings and and getting close to verify really intensive field work right to get data yeah and that was done for a long time and was useful and then it got to the point and me as a wildlife biologist but more as a wildlife photographer now it's like well how many more animals do we need to call her mm -hmm. we know what their ranges are for each species but when the technology swung and became so much more advanced with these GPS callers, it just revitalized everything. And, and mm -hmm. for me, I see so much merit in this research because the their old callers, I mean, it was just basically home range and, and over a long period of time because mm -hmm. you couldn't do a census every day or every week. Whereas these ones are sending information via satellite mm -hmm. to your computer. Or even via the cell network now, if you're in an area that has good cell coverage rather than so it'll still take a location from the satellites but instead of trying to send information back through the satellites which is ex extremely battery intensive and costs you know very expensive mm -hmm. um it'll just send it through through the cell oh, network that's now. even more advanced then yeah so and it, but you can set these callers right you can mm -hmm. program and mm -hmm. and so for instance if you put on a grizzly bear and you want to know you know what it does each day for a year and you can have it ping every 30 minutes or something for a location. I mean, that's very intensive statistical data that's very useful, mm -hmm. far more insightful mm -hmm. into what these 
animals do. Absolutely. And therefore can be extrapolated into how, what they require. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. So it warrants doing all this over again with these collars because we can collect so much more information or more appropriately you can as the wildlife biologist. Right. Yeah. And, and well, I wish, I wish I got to do more of that stuff. Fortunately, I end up behind a desk most of the days. So well, I've but, seen uh, you do. Uh, I know you'd like more field time. We, yeah. all, we all do. I, I, I can yeah. attest to that with the editing at the computer all yeah. the time with the photos. But but you do get in the field, and you've had, you know, we'll, we'll get to that shortly. You've had so many amazing experiences. But So is there anything else about the callers um, as far as the new technology and what that shares? Like even some of the ping devices, and I know this is getting a little off subject, but I was just stunned with enthusiasm when I, what, I forget the name, if, if it was Zelda or the Great White Shark that's been oh, yeah. circumnavigating the globe. Mm. And because of her tracker, we realize that Great White Sharks use all this ocean mm-hmm. habitat. Mm-hmm. You know, they just don't have a winter range and a summer range. No, she's, and, and she's done it annually. You know, and she comes back to the, the waters off of uh, eastern Canada and, and shows up within a few weeks kind of thing. And, and it's so interesting to be able to follow that kind of research online when it is shared that way, right? Mm-hmm. So, and that's that's you know anytime that you start well any kind of research project, whether it's wildlife or, or something, you know whatever it might be. Um, for me, particularly with wildlife, because I'm just so fascinated by them. But once you start, it's kind of staggering how much we don't know. And you know those those VHF callers, we learned a lot from those. Um, those are the radio telemetry. That's right. Yeah, the very, VHF. the very high frequency callers is okay. what they're called. Um, in a lot of ways, they just highlighted the things that we didn't know, and so now we've got these GPS callers, which give us so much more data. You know, like the amount of information that we can pull off of these callers is just staggering now, with in terms of locations, and we've got accelerometers on them that measure activity levels and all kinds of stuff. Um, but you know, the more data that we collect, you know, the more that we're realizing, like, well, we don't, we have no idea what's going on out there, you know. So like I we, have a question that relates to that. What, and you don't have a ton of years using this technology. I mean, what is it? Probably the last five years. Uh, the GPS callers, um, probably ten to fifteen, even. So, with that amount of time, and just, what's Maybe the one 20. thing that sits in your mind that's like, I cannot believe that that animal just did that. You know, like I, we heard a story about out here where they had a grizzly collared, and I don't even know who. I didn't hear the information firsthand. I think I probably heard it from you. Right. But they had a satellite track around this grizz. Just that, had been put on it not too long before, and, and the information was shared. And that bear traveled like this massive distance in one day. Up over a mountain, a snow-capped mountain from the bottom to the other side and back again. In a day. So what's mm-hmm. the motivation in that, right? It's, you got to scratch your head and say, did he just want to go for the view? Yeah. <laughs> or just on a walkabout. Yeah. Exactly. Just goes out for a stroll. You know, like one day they wake up and they say, you know, I'm going to go for a walk today. Right. Like, why? Why are they doing <laughs> that? So is there anything that you you just was one of those holy moly moments where you're just like, that animal just did that? Oof. That, you, that just sticks in your mind? You know, I'm, I'm fr- frequently, when I... I'm able to play with color data. I'm frequently astounded by the behavior that these things show. You know, like this one time I had uh, one of my, my collared wolves, you know, like we were just saying, he, he woke up and said, well, I'll go for a walkabout. And he, he had been in his, you know, established territory with his pack. Uh, and then one day he just walked up north. He went north for maybe 20 miles or so. 
and you can see this other collared wolf that's in the territory that he walked into uh, all of a sudden start heading his way and bang they collide and the, the wolf that w was on walkabout I picked him up dead a week later they killed him right there really? wow yeah so so you because know, it, he was infringing on another pack's territory probably, it yeah. just wasn't accepted yeah he didn't have enough uh, dominance or something to take over or to defeat and, yeah and, and you know like looking at the callers now and then these wolf packs would do that i don't know like it we don't really at least from from the data that i was working with uh, we weren't really sure if it was just a, a single wolf that was going on these kind of excursions or if it was the whole pack that was going i'm not sure um but you know now and then they would just wake up and they'd say you know let's go explore you know let's see what's out beyond the boundaries of our territory and that and that's how they colonize new areas right but so we had several animals that did this, that they went on walkabouts and came back home and everything was good. Um, but this, in this particular case, I don't know if, you know, somebody was howling and somebody else howled back or, or whatever it might have been, but uh, that resident wolf pack was, was able to key in on him when he walked into his territory. And, hmm. uh, yeah, they, they and it was a male? Yeah. Juvenile? or No, he was, um, that was an animal that I had collared actually, and I, now we're going back a little bit, but I—he was mature. I mm. forget exactly how old he was, but he was probably four or five years old. So is that a situation? And now we're really getting off the subject, but it's always interested me. I was in Yellowstone one time filming wolves in the winter time, and you would see this commingling of packs, and then you would see like males from one pack, and there'd be another female, and you could—she was clearly with this other pack, but she was courting or at least howling to or interacting with wolves from another pack. Hmm. I guess that's how, like you said earlier, that's how they establish new areas or new packs are created. Or, I mean, I guess a, a animal like that might just take off thinking it's going to go create its own pack. Yeah, I mean, Maybe. you know, so a, a, a wolf pack, um, the fellow who, who kind of came up with a lot of the terminology that we use today on wolf packs, you know, the alpha male, alpha female, beta, and all that. Uh, David Meese is his name. He's kind of one of the godfathers of wolf biology. Um he he said once that he actually kind of regrets coining those terms, the alpha male, alpha female. Because generally what it is, is just the parents of a family unit. Wolf pack is more so a family unit than a group of unrelated wolves. There are definitely some unrelated wolves in there for sure. You know, for a, a population to persist long term, there needs to be some of that egress and ingress. You know, the immigration, immigration, so that you maintain genetic viability. You know, like you look at population like the the wolves on isle royale um where it's completely isolated exactly yeah. yeah it's an island out in uh in lake superior there that was you know absolutely flooded with moose and then i want to say maybe when was that in the 60s 50s 60s something like that an ice bridge formed up and a pack of wolves walked on and that's actually where david meesh did a lot of his work um and so those wolves have been there ever since there's been maybe one or two perhaps that have crossed onto the island ever since but that wolf population now is basically inbred to the point of non-viability um, they've got all kinds of genetic defects and everything like that you know in, in any natural population like that you're going to have animals mixing here and there mm -hmm. um, but evidently it, it doesn't always go well and yellowstone yellowstone was unique in that when they initially introduced the wolves packs were forming all over the place in a hurry mm -hmm. and th and there were wolves there already there was there's no doubt there's you know evidence that there were already wolves there so they introduced wolves 
mixed with the wolves that were that were in the area already and there were I mean they didn't introduce that many wolves in in probably five years we had about 14 different packs so it didn't take long for them to for them to spread out and, and even move out of the Yellowstone eco- ecosystem but the food sources that were available I mean elk were overpopulated there were solid moose populations obviously the bison populations were overpopulated so they just exploded and it you know early on and initially it was it was definitely a unique situation and that's probably one of the most studied now right is now. that is that the case do you, do yeah, you see that yeah there's been a lot of fascinating work that's come out of the uh, the Yellowstone ecosystem there um for a long time, Isle Royale was probably the, the most heavily studied wolf population, um, but mostly in terms of just longevity. You know, there's yeah, lots of work that goes on in, in, uh, in central Alaska and Denali and other parks and everything like that. But Yellowstone is unique in a sense in that um, not only is there a lot of, you know, there's quite a bit of caller data that comes out of Yellowstone, but there's also an incredible amount of uh, citizen science that goes on there with observers like physically <laughs> watching wolves. Yep. Again, going back to the fascinating animal behavior, you know, they've been able to kind of tease apart, you know, within a pack, you know, okay, so there's this wolf, and she's really good at making the first contact with prey, you know. And then there's this guy who will come in after she's made contact, and he'll grab it by the neck or, you know, latch onto a hind leg or whatever. And then this guy just generally gets in the way. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, they've been able to, to, to see these just these almost innate differences in ability that we would never have been able to to see any other way right just in your watching. area just not having that kind of number of eyeballs on it you just yeah there's no way to know and right? just the landscape even you know yellowstone and in, in a lot of areas particularly where the wolves are it's much more open valleys wide open exactly yeah, yeah. yeah. Up, up in our part of the world up here it's all just bush and you'd have to have unlimited helicopter time to pull that off so it seems like an awesome job i think it's a lot of fun yeah and what you learn and the and the and the colleagues, you know, is so many other people that mm-hmm. are passionate about similar subjects. And, mm-hmm. you know, you and I, I think, share a part of a genetic code where we have this passion for these, as you say, charismatic megafauna. Yeah. Do you want to go there now? Is it time to go to what you've got going on now? What, well, what? I, I was going to spin off and, and, and just cover his time in Colorado. Oh. Because that was very interesting. Yeah. You know, he had his picture in the New York Times. Right. Because of that research, so I mean that's picture a picture of my back. To be fair, I'm sorry. <laughs> you were in. The, you were in the photo. I was in the photo. Yeah, right. So yeah. you were in to the call New York it my Times. photo might be a stretch. And so I mean that's a big accolade. These things happen and are warranted, despite you know some of the things you've said. You're you're successful because of who you are, because of your passion, because of your focus, and your intelligence. And so, with the program that you participated with in Colorado, it was on black bear and black bear populations near mm-hmm. residential areas mm-hmm. and population dynamics about that if i'm remembering accurately yeah pretty much bang on um we were and and on this i wasn't really doing any of the research i was mostly just a, a field you were grunt. handling the animals yeah that's pretty intense research sure right I mean, yeah i mean and so that was much that way by actually physically handling. oh ab- absolutely okay yeah absolutely it's a different kind of thing that you learn you know in terms of it's building blocks you you, you know doesn't that give you the appreciation for these animals that way? So Very that when much you study so, yeah. them on a broader scale later, that you know yeah. that foundation. Yeah, you know, and we, well, we were just talking about animal behavior before, and that that cool thing of, or that interesting thing of where we, uh, you know, had that wolf that walked out of its territory and got killed. 
Um, so you get to see that kind of behavior from collar data. But there's a level of animal be behavior that you don't get when you're sitting in an office just looking at collar data. Um, you know, so like a lot of the the capture work that I've done has really taught me a lot about animal behavior in, you know, uh, certain circumstances, of course, when they're under stress or whatever it might be. Um, but the individual variation that you see between animals is, you know, it's incredible with, with, if it's with bears around urban areas or, or wolves up in, you know, up in the northern boreal or wherever, um, you know, working with animals and handling animals, um, it, uh, it, it can really teach you and show you a lot about how they react to things and differences between individuals. So for our listeners' enjoyment, how did you get your picture in the New York Times with uh, this study? To be honest, I... What happened? No, there's a I reason. don't actually even really know. Well, no. I was, well so I was, I was working on a bear that we had. Um, we, uh, so this is denning time? This, was, was, this it? was during the summer collaring work. Summer collaring work. Okay. Yeah. So All we right. had we had trapped the bear in a big, you know, barrel trap, sure. cage trap, um, and uh, we had uh, we had the animal drugged and we were monitoring, of course, and it was under anesthesia. Um, I think I was maybe taking measurements of it or something like that. Okay. And somebody snapped a picture, and then a, a week later it showed up in the New York Times. So it was the New York Times published it because of the importance of the study that was taking place in this part of, of southern Colorado. I believe so, yeah. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. they ran a, a bit of a feature piece on the, on the research that was going on. And now, handling all of these different species, and this is just the beginning of the story now with the bears, but, I mean, it gives you a comfort in the outdoors too, right? I yeah. I mean, a familiarity with them that a lot of people don't have that benefit. You know, yeah. That bears, you know, are highly intelligent and certainly deserve our respect. Mm -hmm. but aren't necessarily to be feared, obviously. Mm -hmm. And um, so in this case, in Colorado, then, it was just why they were being collared was just to see how frequently they were going into urban areas or, or the city versus the hills. Yeah, that was, that was a big part of it, looking at the movement patterns of different bears and their kind of habitat utilization, if it was, right. you know, out in the bush or if it was in town, you know, knocking over garbage bins or feeding off of fruit trees or, or whatever it might be. Um, bird feeders. Yeah. Bird. Feeders. Knocking bird over barbecues. Seeds, pretty popular stuff. Uh, barbecues. Yeah. yeah. Grass seed. Right. Um, one of the, the other benefits, though, was that um, we were able to go back. I say we. It's a very liberal we. But uh, the research team was able to go back uh, in the winter um, and monitor these animals in their dens. So we were only collaring the females of the population. And then we'd come back in the winter and we could measure recruitment rates of these bears. Uh, so the first year, you know, of course, bears have their cubs when the cubs are very small. And so we'd come in in, you know, February, March, something like that. And we'd measure uh, cubs, how many cubs there were, how big they were, all that kind of thing. And then we come back the next year when the sow was in the den with what would have been her yearlings and we'd count how many had survived. And so we could kind of link that that sow's movement patterns and her habitat utilization and her utilization of uh, anthropogenic food sources, so human food sources, we could link that to her reproductive output. And so we could start to try to piece together how the use of these towns and urban areas was affecting the population demographics. And again, I say we, I was just a field grunt, but that was the intent of the research. But that's where you learn. Yeah, and, yeah, absolutely. You, know, you can apply all of that now in, in your senior position 
right? Yeah. So yeah, it's yeah. like as, being a photo as, assistant. As, right. You yeah. learn you learn the craft, and then you go, then you can do it yourself. But it's just that way for wildlife biology. Mm-hmm. You know, I I uh, read that study just oh, a couple of months ago. Mm-hmm. Th- there's a lot of interesting information there. Yeah, very. And much. I think ultimately, you just learn how to manage people, right? And that is absolutely what uh, human wildlife conflict comes down to. It's all about people. And as a very wildlife-centric guy, you know, I always want to work on the wildlife. I want to study wildlife and see what they're doing and everything. It doesn't matter. You know, what matters is what the people are doing. Because the people in all of these conflict situations, the vast majority of the time, it's the people and human behavior that's the issue. Um, You know, in some cases, it's, you know, unavoidable in some ways. But um, by and large, particularly with urban areas or, or whatever the case may be, Human wildlife conflict is largely a human human issue. Yep. So how how different is it from going doing a study like that in Colorado in a very urban area? Mm. Now I don't know where you live or how big the town is where you're at now. And then your study area, you said the northern twenty percent of Alberta, which I have no clue how big that is. It's got to be That's huge. Big. It's big. Yeah. So is the size of what half the state of Colorado or? A third of the state of Colorado, or maybe a third. So that's a humongous area. So it's I, a big I would assume land. that you get to m- manage more for wildlife in that environment as opposed to, I would say, all of Colorado. Now you're managing people. It's not. I mean, there's a few wilderness areas, but right. they would mm-hmm. pale in comparison to the size of the areas you're dealing with now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it depends on the management issue that you're working on too. You know, managing. Ungulates, you know, say we're managing a moose population or something like that, they don't really get into a whole lot of conflict. So it's not that big of a deal, you know, how many people are around, other than, you know, some collisions and getting into bird feeders and, and whatnot. Um, but, I mean, you're you're bang on the money that by having such a big area in what is largely a fairly remote remote part of the world, um, I th- you know, we probably have more moose than we have people up there, which is a pretty nice place to be for a biologist. So. Yeah, I would say it's the it's the dream job. It's like being a a, f- a full-time photographer in Antarctica, right? Or Alaska, the Yukon. Yeah. Just better love penguins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> penguins and sea lions and, yeah. and, and cetaceans, <laughs> whales. And lots yeah. of ice, snow. Yeah. Light on icebergs. Mm. Ice. Yeah, yeah. glacier. Um, so with what you're doing now, I mean, I've seen images, and we'll put some of those in the show notes for our listeners to enjoy the visual pleasure of. So go there and see that on our website. Um, but you had to do the aerial surveys, mm-hmm. and with such a big wilderness area and a, and a broad ecosystem, you know, you've, you've got your foundation with certain species like the wolves in Ontario and, and the bears in Colorado. And you've seen all these other species traveling for other reasons, some and our trips together and stuff too. But mm-hmm. um, now you have the pleasure of, of observing all these populations and the dynamics between them. And I know um, the footage that you shared with some of the winter aerial surveys up there in the north on the fringe of the mountains, phenomenal. And the sheep um, mm-hmm. introduction, tran- um, relocation. Oh, yeah, that was, was that was some fun work. Fun work and amazing experience. So if you could tell us maybe some of the highlights about that. I, I know you know, collaring and tracking the mountain lions in your region. Mm-hmm. Something else, in addition to the, the breadth of species you cover, I also want to highlight, while we have time for our listeners, um, is 
your study last year I found very interesting and I didn't know this until recently that there was a, a video put together oh, that's yeah. on YouTube that highlights this and yeah. what I really appreciated about it was the round table if you will although it was an elongated rectangular yeah. table yeah. but all these different parties that you know overlap in grizzly bear country came to the same table to discuss and 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 talk and educate one another about their perspectives and what might be best for management from these different mm -hmm. um, points of view mm -hmm. and so I, I i want we'll put that link in our in our show notes as well so people can go see this summary video because it's quite insightful but your study i think is is very modern and and very applicable in these situations where you have an animal like a grizzly bear that do roam a fair bit and and can cover you know these various other human interest groups and bring them together so maybe let's jump into that if you can yeah summarize that study and, and yeah, so why that, it was done and how it was done so that study that you're referring to was uh, last year in collaboration with quite a few partners uh we started a uh, grizzly bear population assessment within what we call bear management area one in northwest alberta um, most of the grizzly bear range within alberta is all mountains and foothills kind of along the eastern slopes kind of southwest portion of alberta there but then we have this one grizzly bear population kind of northwest of the town of peace river that's largely in boreal forest uh, there's there's some stuff in there that's kind of reminiscent of foothills, but predominantly it's just kind of boreal forest, um, and yet we have grizzly bears in there. So the habitat that, that those bears live in is very different from the habitat that the rest of Alberta's grizzly bears live in. And so a lot of the um, kind of population level modeling and stuff that goes on, it's largely centered on those... Uh, foothills and mountains populations and doesn't really fit all that well with our populations in the northwest. So what we did was we we partnered with, uh, as you mentioned about that roundtable, we partnered with um, quite a few industry partners who work on that landscape, um, as well as the Alberta Conservation Association and some non-government organizations. We got a grant to do um, what we called spatially explicit capture recapture project which is just a very fancy pardon, way pardon me <laughs> <laughs> it's a very fancy way of saying we went out and collected a whole bunch of grizzly bear hair okay uh so now is that is that dangerous because what do you do put duct tape on your hand and you run up to the bear and that's pet right. it, it velcro and actually <laughs> yeah it works better not at all listeners not at all so how's that <laughs> how, how how is that done how's that facilitated so what we did and this is kind of the the bread and butter for grizzly bear and bear research programs in general. Actually, this, this black bear project that I worked in uh, in Colorado, we did something similar for black bears. But what you do is you take a, a strand of barbed wire, you, you wrap it at maybe oh, two feet above the ground, give or take. Um, and you, you find kind of four trees that make a bit of a square, and you, and you wrap it at that height around those four trees, so you have a bit of a corral. And then you dump just some stinky liquid of some kind or some kind of stinky substance for us we used uh, rancid cow blood which is really fun for our field technicians um, but we so we dump that in the middle and then we'd come back and we'd refresh that that lure pile every two weeks and we would pick off all the bear hair that came on the wire so the bears would smell this really stinky stuff they come either underneath or over top of the wire and that that barbed wire just snags some hair off of them and then we collect that hair every two weeks and we send it off to the lab the lab runs a whole bunch of fancy genetic genotyping work that I 
don't understand. Um, but they can figure out which individual bear that was that left us that hair sample. And so when we run enough of those sites and we have enough of those collection events, we can start to kind of paint a picture of, okay, which bear was here and which bear was here. And okay, so we got this bear here and over here. So he, you know, maybe is moving in, in this certain way. And so we can develop population level parameters for how these bears are using their landscape, as well as how many bears we probably have in total as a, a ballpark estimate. So this population, like I said before, we, we know very little about them. Um, so we were kind of coming in a little bit blind, you know, it's a bit of a black box worth of a population for us. So we kind of just threw as much effort as we could into this project and ran a whole pile of sites for, I think, 10 weeks in total. And um, I think we should be getting results from the lab back within a month, I think. That's so, exciting. Yeah. So when did you... When did you finish with the collection phase then? So we finished the collection phase, uh, would have been last July. And mid, still mid. waiting for yeah. the comprehensive results. Yeah, it's a process. So we, we I think we got like 4,200 hair samples or something like that. So I had to go through and air check them all and make sure it's all entered into the database and then send it off to the lab. And I think the lab was eight or ten months or so of work. So. That's one of the positives of technology and advancements that that have been made is that now you can do something like this 20 years ago. Absolutely. It would have been impossible to, for, for technicians in a lab to even get through 4,200. Yeah, absolutely. So absolutely. Yeah. So the, the improvements that we've seen have not only been in things like collars or things like that, but other analytical techniques, you know, be it, you know, genotyping to figure out individuals or isotope work to figure out diet or, or whatever the case may be. So the goal out of that study then is what? So you've the, got all these partners. Yep. And then you guys are running the study. What what information are you looking for? Just how to interact with them, how to maintain that population, how to keep them healthy, how to keep them not endangered? What What's the goal? Yeah, so grizzly bears are, are a listed species within Alberta. We're working on developing a grizzly bear management plan provincially. And one of the components of the grizzly bear uh, well, I guess grizzly bear recovery plan is uh, what they call bear management area specific management plans. And so with all these industry partners that we were able to bring together to the same table, we said, okay, so we need to draw up a recovery plan for this grizzly bear population. How are we going to do that and what is that going to look like? And we'll, the thing that kept coming back was we can't really start to understand how to manage this population until we know more about them because we really know very little. So the intent of the study was to try and fill a lot of those different knowledge gaps through um, largely from this study looking at um, the density of grizzly bears that we have across the study area, so I guess the actual population estimate, um, but more importantly the actual distribution of bears across the landscape. The number of bears that we have isn't really all that critical. Uh, it provides us a bit of a baseline that we can come back to and reference when we hopefully do this project again, maybe five, ten years down the road. Um, but the distribution of bears would be fairly important for us so we can figure out, okay, you know, they're really using this area heavily, let's kind of throw some more protection type management efforts into this area. Or, you know, this area seems to be largely void of grizzly bears, let's try and figure out why that's the case. And with these partnerships, I mean, Wyoming, we have coordinated resource management, they call it, and they'll bring in industry folks, they'll bring in landowners, um, 
multiple use type people is that is that kind of the model you guys are going off of and trying to get everybody's input yeah very much so very much so in the landscape that we're working in up there there's quite a bit of industry both forestry and oil and gas and then on kind of the southern fringe and the eastern fringe uh, there's a fair bit of agriculture as well so the 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 industry guys were some of the kind of the, the key players in affecting the land base that these grizzly bears have so that was kind of the the easiest one for us to tackle um right off the get-go and kind of worked more appropriately within the kind of round table type uh program i suppose organization um whereas working with uh, agricultural guys and landowners and producers and all that that's more of a kind of one-on-one you know, sitting down over a coffee table, having discussions kind of thing. And so that stuff is continually ongoing and probably will be for, for quite some time. So what starts a study for you? Do you guys, is it always an issue? Is it always a species in an issue or is it always industry or is it? It's mostly, it's an interesting way to frame it. I would say most of our research programs start because of a question that is posed by an issue so like well for this grizzly bear thing for example you know we the question well we had all kinds of questions but we were asking those questions because we were trying to solve an issue and that issue was grizzly bear recovery um we're we're hoping to start doing a fair bit of um work with one of our bison herds up in northwest alberta and you know, at this point from our survey data, it looks like their populations are below our objective right now. And so we're starting to ask the question, okay, why is that? You know, all other population parameters seem to look fine, but we aren't seeing as many animals on survey as, as we typically do. You know, so why is that? And so then we'll start asking biological questions and then we can start trying to figure out the answers to those questions. Build a framework, get some partners involved, and mm-hmm. time in the field. Mm-hmm. And it's probably never ending, right? I mean, you could oh. study every single thing out there. You got to prioritize. You yeah. Gotta f- really figure out. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Important. I mean, the the number of questions that we could try to answer out there is limitless. You know, it's just a matter of you know prioritizing what is a a, a priority and what should we would be what should we be spending taxpayer money on? You know, given our management uh, imperative, I suppose. So. That makes sense. You have to have a logical approach and what you can assess, you know, yeah. and the technology, as we pointed out in this podcast, is advancing. I mean, even the fact that you mentioned the GPS collars could be 10, 15, 20 years old, just like all of the apps on our smartphones, they continually get upgraded, right? The technology changes and improves. Mm-hmm. And that's something, it's funny that you say that, the um, the use of uh, what they call citizen science. Um, it's, there's a lot of work being done on using, uh, you know, just it, folks who are out on the landscape, trying to use them to help collect biologically meaningful and helpful data. So as part of this Grizzly Bear program, actually, we've developed an app that allows folks who are out on the landscape to um, submit a sighting report of when they see a grizzly bear. And that's not something that's really all that new. There's always been ways for folks to, you know, talk to us and tell us when and where they've seen something. Um, But the issue with that is, so we can figure out where people are seeing grizzly bears. It's a lot harder to figure out where people aren't. Because we don't know, so say there's an area where 
we don't have any sightings of grizzly bears. We don't know if that's because there's nobody there or if because there's no grizzly bears there. Or if we have a whole pile of sightings in one area, is there a whole pile of grizzly bears there or is there just a whole pile of people who are seeing two different bears? So what we've done is we've developed an app um, to helpfully, hopefully help us collect what we call observer effort. So we can actually map across our landscape. Okay, these are where the people who are collecting data for us, these are where they're looking. And then relative to that, this is, these are the areas where we seem to be, to be finding these bears. In that app, can you put out information saying something like, you know what, we don't get any sightings from this area and we don't know if it's because people just aren't going there or, and, and dealing with an area like where you're at, I mean, there are some remote areas, right? Yeah, so absolutely. It's, yeah. it's a major expedition to get from, you know, to, to one of these remote areas. So I mm -hmm. can see where it would just be people not being there. Mm -hmm. But is there a way to ask people to say, hey, if you want something to do this weekend, you got to go check out this area because not very many people go there. And we, yeah, I mean, is that a, is that something that comes through or, or I, you just don't advertise that kind of stuff? I think, uh, in our landscape, that would be tough to pull off. There's not much for recreationalists back there, except maybe during the fall hunting season or something like that. It's mostly the oil and gas folks or firefighters or something who are, who are out there. Um, you know, but there's been a lot of interest in this app from, other areas that have grizzly bears where it is much more of a recreationalist, you know, bikers, backpackers, hikers, whatever it might be, horseback riders. Um, and so, the, I mean, there very well could be an avenue for us to say, you know, hey, we're, we're pretty data deficient in this area. Go take a peek, see what you find. Right, because everybody's always looking for something to do, right? And if you had a purpose, it may not be the most beautiful area, but it, if you're going to go out there and you're it's like... It's always fun to explore. Exactly. Yeah, we've talked talked in the past about how photographers can take part in wildlife management whether it's by a license even if you don't use it so that those funds get used this it's would be a great opportunity to yeah that's the first i've ever heard of that that's cool i mean what what mm -hmm. starts that what is it just forward thinking well and so that was i mean again a question that was posed by an issue right i mean so this landscape that we're working in it's very remote hard to access but there are folks out there on a daily basis who are out there because they have to work out there, right? And we keep getting all these sighting reports that are interesting and to an extent are useful, but their usefulness for us as a management agency, the usefulness is limited because we don't know we don't know what to believe. There's, there's a few loose parameters, but you want the statistics, right? Yeah. And I think now something with this technology that's a game changer for this type of field research is the ease of use. Absolutely. People are so engaged with their apps and are happy to do it quickly versus yeah. the old school where you'd get a form sent out yeah. over a period of time, please fill it in and mail it back yeah. or phone in. People just didn't get that done. Yeah. Whereas the app, they get it done. Yeah. And and the citizen science, I, I, was, uh, I gave a talk on moose um, a couple of months ago and prior to my... Uh, that evening for this field naturalist organization, there was a graduate student who gave uh, a presentation on his master's degree. And that was where I was introduced to this citizen science observation. And what they had done, and this was in Ontario, this was a field naturalist primarily birding uh, club, mm -hmm. but were very, um, very, very um, educated as to all the different species. So reliable as far as sightings, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but they can't control where they're going. Yep. So there could be a bias where, you know, these people like to go to this park or this migratory location that, that they enjoy because they know they have success. Yeah, yeah. But the data is still relevant because they're still seeing it. And, and, and just as far as a general 
summary, right? But what was interesting was this graduate student had been taking all of these bird sightings for these various species and trying to extrapolate that based on the citizen science because he didn't have the manpower mm -hmm. nor budget to do mm -hmm. that, that breadth of a survey. So why not embrace it? And something as what you're doing, you know, to me is very interesting when it, when it fine tunes right on to that species for grizzly bears or maybe the app could have other species too right and why and very much just, so and that would engage the the citizen scientists observers even more so because oh today i saw this this and this and this and hit those boxes and send yeah yeah so the the agency that we've worked with to develop this app misnacus institute um all of the code for building this app and running the observer effort piece that we've created it's all open source it can be developed for whatever use folks want to use it for um you know this this largely just came about because um you know we wanted to better understand our populations and if by developing this tool then other folks are able to do the same with theirs i mean have at her well, and I think it's awesome. Yeah, for wildlife observation and, and just statistical viewing, mm -hmm. we don't know, you mm -hmm. know. So in, in in the area in the northern Rockies, there's a limited number of caribou, right? Mm -hmm. So what if somebody saw a caribou today, but they didn't have the time to register that? It's a significant setting with such a small population. Yeah. You know, whereas if there's an app and it's and people more and more people are aware of it. So I don't know if there's something you can say to our listeners as to where they would go, and I guess obviously to the people that live in your region, but it might be of interest for other regions too because if they can develop an app like this then there will be sightings mm -hmm. you know, for yeah absolutely so the app that we've developed is called grizz tracker uh it's on the app store Suitable. yeah right um don't search for grizzly in the app store that comes up with a whole different okay thing all right um but grizz tracker uh, is the name of the app um currently we're we're still kind of beta testing it within what we call bma1 bear management area one um, but certainly the idea, the platform, uh, you know, it's, it's wide open for anyone to, to take it and run with it to, to better understand any of the populations that they might work with or, or be around, you know, it's of course right now, Grizz trackers or Grizzly bear centric. Um, but it by no means has to be, you know, well, we've had, we've had interest from folks in the Southern States for, um, you know, looking at feral hogs or, or whatever the case yeah, may be. Yeah, I would think so it could be. Yeah, so Fast. so all all you do is you open up the app, mm -hmm. you just you do what you call starter trips. You just press a button on the app, and then you just leave it open, um, and it has a background um, similar to a GPS caller. It takes a location in the background every so often, um, and simply by doing that addition to an app, we're able to figure out you know where folks are actually looking for animals. And then when they report a sighting through the app, then we know, okay, so they were looking along this whole trajectory and they found one in at point X, you know, we compile a whole bunch of those observations and, and, uh, and all of a sudden we start to get something that's, that's hopefully quite powerful. So do you have anything in place to, I don't know how to phrase this, increase or, or indicate the reliability of the sighting? I mean, because you're in areas where, there's different color phases of black bears, yep. and people think just because it's not black, oh, I saw a grizzly bear. Yeah, absolutely. and that's that's been something that we've been trying to work through on the app. So on the app, we have what we call, I forget actually what it's labeled as on the app, but there, there's an, uh, kind of a, a selection bar where you can pick how certain you are mm -hmm. in what you saw. The confidence rating on your yeah. sighting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so we try and 
you know, rate things by that. We also have on the app and on the website as well, we have tips and tools for how to identify a grizzly bear versus a black bear. Sure. Um, but yeah, like you said, Ron, that's, that's smart though. Educate the people. That, yeah. You know, that's and, and that's, you know, a whole other side of this whole citizen science stuff is to, um, you know, get folks involved and engaged in wildlife management and, and trying to learn about these, about these animals, you know. So not only is the data useful for us, but hopefully we're getting folks engaged uh, in in, in, in what process. we're doing. Yeah. yeah, and and by them, you know, submitting information, they can feel that um, they've actually had you know a meaningful role. They're in invested in it. Exactly. Yeah. Can you submit a photograph to yep. it? See, that's cool because then you got all this metadata that people may not even know that exists on a picture, but if they send you that picture, then you've got location. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's probably a dot, so you're not going to get a bunch of visual yeah. information, but it, it's really good. I mean, it, you can know the temperature. You can know. Yeah. You can, I mean, a picture gives us an idea of the type of area that they were in, you know, and all the, the data is all completely anonymous and all that stuff. So, um, good that would be important. Yeah. And that, that was know, a big right? one that, that we kind of had to work through when we were developing this, um, was making sure that folks were comfortable knowing that like, look, we don't know who's going where and we don't care. Right. Know? From a wildlife management perspective, yeah. I don't care. I just want the data. Yeah. So it's exciting. This is a whole new kind of field opening because there's there's so many people, hopefully more and more all the time, invested in wilderness and wild wildlife populations, mm-hmm. and to be able to use their eyes and their efforts while they're enjoying whatever activity they're doing. Absolutely. To collect data will be is could be huge. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. 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 And you know, there's always been some level of quote-unquote citizen science going on within wildlife management if that's you know hunter surveys or or whatever it was and for years and years that was mostly all that was there in terms of an actual concerted data collection effort but with these new app developments and you know the different projects that are going on this extends that into the entire population that wants to be out in the field because it's so user-friendly now yeah and yeah, it's it, hopefully this, this, if this we design be, the app well. Well, it'll, it'll be continual refinement in yeah, all of this. Yeah, very much. As a as a research tool, yeah. and methods to engage people mm-hmm. and to encourage people and to market it to people. All of that. This is just the beginning, right? So there'll be ways. How many people know about this? How do you get it out there? All this needs refinement, but when you, uh, it'll only improve with time mm-hmm. as more and more enthusiastic outdoors people have this available. Um, and this is what we're hoping will happen with with this whole Grizz Tracker app. You know, we've we've put a fair bit of work into developing it, and we've been you know doing some debugging and working through the errors and and all that stuff. We hope that we've got it to a point where it is able to collect meaningful data, and at that point we're just, we're trying to validate that that's actually the case. Uh, at a certain point, you know we want to just kind of broadcast it out there and say, hey, we're working on developing this tool. We think it's in a place where it's close to being useful, both for the general public as well as for wildlife management. You know, grab onto it, folks. Take it for a rip and, and see what it can do. Hopefully it's useful for you. That's a good Canadian term right there. Let's <laughs> go take it for a rip, <laughs> boys. Take it for a rip. <laughs> that, hang on. <laughs> so I think that is, I mean, geez, that's so awesome. I mean, what's the buy-in? I, and it may not be that far along yet, but you look at like some of these oil and gas guys who have to travel all you know all day long, and they're going to all these different spots. I mean, you get those guys buying in on it, and yeah, you can get some really good data. I would think that way, and it's not a lot of work on their part, and hopefully they find that it's fun. 
mm-hmm. I was uh, in an area in northern New Mexico last year and ran up against a lot of these oil and gas guys, and they were so excited to tell us about a wildlife sighting or tell us about, oh, hey, we saw a great big bull over here. And so they're, I think they're into it. If mm-hmm. they're into that kind of a job, they are into it, and they enjoy seeing the wildlife just as much as any of us. So yeah. you get that buy-in from the, that crowd. Yeah, absolutely. That's huge. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, as with anything, it's very person-specific, you know, how, how into any anybody gets. There's also, there seems to be a bit of a sweet spot in terms of how prevalent or how common wildlife sightings are, you know. So, you know, one of the things that we're stumbling a little bit with, with our BMA1 Grizz Tracker rollout is that it's pretty rare to see a grizzly bear out there. Some folks see them often, but, you know, if you see one or two a year, you're probably not going to be running Grizz Tracker all the time like we would hope that you would. Why not expand it? Why, given your research with mountain lions, which I need, we need, Mike, Ron, and I to have you on another podcast. All right. We should have announced at the beginning of this, this is a part one of two or three. All right. (laughs) But... We don't want to limit it. Though. Okay. That's, <laughs> if, if I'm going to run out of things to say eventually. Oh, no, trust me. It won't me. take very this long. Is all, this is all good and, and so insightful for our listeners. You know, they hear so much of our photography experiences and, and our gear hacks and all the stuff that we're doing, but we love to bring on this kind of content because we are passionate about these wildlife populations, and this is this is the level where it's real, the management side of it, and how to interact with people and wildlife, right, this uh, ongoing issue and growing populations of humanity. So, but why not, if you've invested this much time in Grizz Tracker, why why is, why is, don't you have other species on there? Why not just have mountain lions on there mm-hmm. and moose? or So that it's not, oh, yeah, I saw a bear. There was that app because mm-hmm. it was so infrequent a spotting. Mm-hmm. But if on every day that these truckers or whomever's in the outdoors um, – they're engaged with it frequently. Mm-hmm. The more they're engaged with it, the more they're likely to remember it to do it. So it's a mule deer, it's a white-tailed deer, it, it's you know, yep. a bighorn sheep or a mountain goat, moose. Have all these, I'm going to say, sexy animals on there that people will see and charismatic get, megafauna. Get, ex- <laughs> get excited <laughs> to spot, as I have always done all my life and yeah. still do. It's why I, I love this career. You know, if you have it all there, then they're going to be engaged routinely. Yeah. And then you'll get those grizzly ones, maybe even more reliably because it's not every couple of months and because they're engaged. Think of, think of Instagram. Now, I, I know you're not on it yet. <laughs> and, we're, still, we're still working on that. But, well, <laughs> you know, because I know you're busy with your research and it's not, and it's a photography driven app, but there's a lot of information to be had there. But why I mention Instagram in this circumstance is that. People hit it all the time because they enjoy seeing those visuals, the interaction. And if Grizz Tracker is morphed into a different name and has all these charismatic megafauna, then people are going to remember it more and engage with it more. And then the data collection, why limit it to one species? Mm-hmm. If you're going to invest the time in programming an app, marketing it and making it so appealing that people want to do it, and you're reaching out to the community saying, this is here, you're educating them, it would be very little additional expense to add the other species yeah yeah very much it would take you know our programmer maybe a, a day of coding to, to add in the other species do it man well and and, then, and, and then alberta sells it to texas so they can track feral hawks so, yeah. <laughs> well uh, yeah we were actually joking Pay just the other the day program. in the office about selling 
selling the app, but unfortunately, we, are, we already made it free, so we've kind of oh. we've kind of goofed ourselves out of that. Well, it's not, <laughs> if this is the case, then you know there are all these updates coming through on all these apps because they're yeah. always being refined yeah. across these platforms and smartphones. Yeah, um, and that you, very well. You, you you have to reprogram it. So in order to come out with the actual app, maybe you can adjust that down the road. Well, yeah, yeah. and and that very well might be and probably will be where it goes. You know? But I mean, even as far is, as is collecting revenue from it for the efforts that you've put forward. As a, as a collective to develop this app. Yeah. If you refined it to the point that it works so well, why not try to market it? I don't know what, what the, the government side of that is, nor am I trying to go there in this podcast. Yeah. It's none of my... Government stuff. agency partnered with a uh, non-government organization. It's free. Right, okay. They so can use it. Let's, so uh, it would be awesome to see the other species on it. Because I yeah. think people would be more yeah, and more I, engaged with it. Because and, and I agree. And fishers, that, pine martins, whatever. You know, people yeah. get excited to see a coyote. It's all data. Yeah. And, you know, why not list it? And then, then the grizz will come out of that. And mm -hmm. I think more consistently. That's just my mm -hmm. two cents. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not in, in your chair. So mm -hmm. I just get excited about that idea because then you can hit all these ones, you know. What mm -hmm. about feedback on the app? Does it say, oh, these are the sightings that were made today? So there is an app, or sorry, there is a map um, that's associated with the app that can show you, there's a bit of a time delay on it, but it can show you, you know, where things have been spotted. Uh, and that's something that we have talked about a fair bit in terms of, you know, so, well, like that shark. Explain you know? the time delay, though. There's a reason for it. Yeah. Like, I know, I know this grizzly study that was done in, in the remote Rockies had it, it, they didn't want the data out right away because yeah. they didn't want people to know exactly where those animals were. Yeah. Both from a animal safety and an animal right. harassment perspective. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's important. That, and, and that's, it's understandable that yeah. there'd be a lag in the release of information, but please go ahead with what you're going to say. Well, I was just going to say like the, the shark that you were talking about mm -hmm. at the very beginning there, that's kind of circumventing the globe. Mm -hmm. Now that I've started talking about this, I'm not entirely sure of the accuracy of what I'm about to say, but I believe that that was released. I think it was live wasn't it? I'd have to double check on that. I okay. mean, that would be super cool because you, it, people feel in the moment they know where that yeah. incredible animal or fish, sorry, yeah. incredible fish is and can follow it real time. That I, I would, that would be ideal, but I'm not sure if, it, if that's the case either. Yeah. It, for, for something for like that kind of where reasons. like, you know, very few people have the ability to go out and, well, and try and track down a yeah, shark yeah, in the middle yeah, of the Pacific. Yeah, you know, yeah, no yeah. problem to release that real time. But, uh, yeah, like for a grizzly bear or, you know, say we, we add elk to it or whatever. Sure. You know, unfortunately, there's some bad things that can happen if that in information is... Well, but I think even if it's a week old, I would still right. be... I'd sure. be, mm. I think that's cool. And then it's almost like that Instagram thing, right? Because it could turn into this thing where you just want to see what's in your area. So mm -hmm. if you are living up there, you just... I mean, well, it, it becomes like an Instagram yeah. thing, right? Where you mm -hmm. go check your Instagram feed just to see... Well, you check who's the put news, up what? You check the weather. All these apps. Why not check what what the wildlife board says for this week? What we had around. It'd be pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I even if it was two weeks old, I wouldn't care. I just, I just, it's that, it's that. It turns it into, a, I wouldn't say a game, but it turns it into that something that you want to check back for. Yeah, well, it's engaging. Just, There's always it's, more yeah. it's engagement. Exactly. Yeah, it turns it into more of a. A two-way conversation, you know, right? Rather than just you know you as a user submitting stuff to me as government, right? You know, now there's actual bit of communication right. going on, right? Well, I think it'll evolve into that, and I'm sure you guys have talked about all that kind of stuff. But it is fun to talk about and just mm -hmm. see what. 
I mean, I'm just excited to even hear that that thing exists. How well, cool is that? Engaging the public now, that, that, right. you know, citizen science. That's, uh, I mean, that's the, the scientific terminology that's around mm-hmm. it. But it's mm-hmm. it's a great tool. Mm-hmm. Why not? People love to do it. If the right kind of presentation, you know, so it's enjoyable and as you say, anonymous. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah, and the key has been, you know, to to turn these sighting reports that you know have always been coming in, to turn them into something that's uh, scientifically defensible mm-hmm. and rigorous that mm-hmm. we can actually use when we're making management decisions. That's another podcast conversation, I think. I'm sure. Well, <laughs> well <laughs> with that in mind, I mean, we should, we got lights getting good outside. We should go photograph. But I have one more question for you. All right. Make it, so, make it quick because the light is pretty nice. It is really mm-hmm. nice. Mm-hmm. And it involves photography. So you've been out with Mark. You've got your own camera. You're a pretty good photographer. How much of that do you take into your job? Is it fun? I mean, is it something where you go out, you won't go out without a camera? Or is you it know, it, I'm a, I'm a pretty bad photographer in that regard, in that I almost never carry my camera when I'm working because it's just generally too much else going on. You know? Well, and it's another thing to carry and it's another thing to, yeah. And unfortunate as it is, we've actually very rarely see animals in, you know, nice flattering light or the footage that you've, you've shared with us is phenomenal from a couple of, of right your aerials and uh, we'll put those on the show notes for this podcast right too on. and the, and the animals that you've been able to interact with as well mm-hmm. uh, we'll put a few of those pictures up for people to enjoy and to appreciate what you do boots in the field because it's hard work and like you say it's not all beautiful evening night you're you're out there in the bush and, and you don't avoid the woods because the mosquitoes are out there right you still have to go mm. right that kind of thing you're, you're subject to whatever elements in yeah, order exactly. to get the research collected yeah. the information so we really, really appreciate you taking the time to give us some behind the scenes into the some something yeah. that we're all so passionate about and My care pleasure. about. My pleasure. Yeah, it was great to be on. So And I've I got the app. Have Did you got it? it? So if I ever find myself in Bear Management Area One in Alberta Sign yourself I'm ready, up. I'm ready to roll. <laughs> right on. <laughs> I love the podcast is even finished and Ron already has the app on his phone. It, that's how easy it is. That's how easy it is. Yeah. Well said. Give me data. Let me use it. Well, thank you, Luke. Hold on one second. Yes. Sorry. It's okay. <laughs> so bear management area one is exactly where? That is northwest of Peach River, Alberta. Okay. Yeah. So that's it's, it's pretty remote. If you if listeners are in bear management area one, I mean, wow. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. Yeah, I'll see you at the pub on Thursday. But this this, <laughs> this app could like very likely expand as well, right? Very much so. Why not? Yeah. And yeah. and we're currently talking with you know folks in BC and like I said down south in the states to to roll it out to different projects in different areas. So why not just even just I mean the the broader the better wherever it goes. But why not just all of Alberta get all the different divisions on board with it? Could, yeah, could that happen? Yeah, for sure. And that's okay. that's probably where we're going pretty quick here. Oh, we, good. The reason we've constrained it so far is we want to make sure that we've tried, we've hopefully worked through the bugs. Uh, yeah. So we don't roll sure. it out and then have to call it all back in. Okay. Makes so. sense. This has been super insightful. Well, I hope so. Well, yeah. I am fun. super excited just to hear about that. I mean, I love hearing all the other stuff that you got yeah. going on, but that is really cool. Yeah. And we, yeah. again, we talk about ways for people to get involved in the management of wildlife, and this is definitely something that's very simple, good user interface, and, and, gives people the opportunity to have some input. Mm-hmm. 
we've talked about joining organizations and, and mm -hmm. f you know uh, giving donations and for what people believe in but uh, this yeah. is this is another way that's arguably even easier so why not do it yeah. and I hope it expands to that point where it will I be across so you know our listening audience and, yeah. and you know five years from now there's this app is commonplace it yeah. could easily do that it could even be faster given how things take off virally and on these platforms you know once all the fine-tuning is finished on it yeah yeah absolutely you know and there's make sure your name's on there somewhere yeah <laughs> <laughs> well i yeah. mean it's from the from the ground up right anyway as far yeah. as the development and, and yeah you know, i mean so. yeah you know, is it one of a kind we do with it that's not why we do it but oh, i know yeah. no no i'm not I, it's not it's not the credit uh, yeah no I, I i know what you mean i know what you mean i just know your passion for this stuff so yeah. And I know Very apps don't have credit credit lines, and, and and obviously in the whole world, that's a whole other conversation. Mm. You know, that's a whole different thing. But mm. anyway, by the way, I should I should say that uh, I've been mostly on the sidelines for this uh, this whole Grizz Tracker development. The the okay. main player behind this has been Courtney Hughes, okay, and our whole team in in the Peter office. So right, Metalka, Lyle, the whole gang. Awesome, yeah. And I was only familiar with it after uh, I'd seen we talked about it briefly, but seen that video. Mm. And that really, all the, all the aspects of this research stuff. And wasn't the app mentioned through that video as yeah. well? Right. Yeah, absolutely. So right. the, the video so the that... the research, the app, it was all in there. Yeah, there's there's kind of three different sections to that video. There's one on, uh, you know, what we call Bear Smart, you know, working safely within bear bear country. There's a section on the Grizz Tracker app, and then there's a section on the uh, the population modeling, population estimate program that we were talking about earlier that we ran last summer. So the kind of the, the science side of it. So we'll put those in the show notes, but can you tell listeners how to find that easily on YouTube? I'll just uh, put it on. I'll just make the link right to the, the, the okay. video will be right on our page okay. if it's a public Good. video. Yep, yep. It's just on YouTube. All right. Well, I can't wait to have you on again because I know, Sign I up. mean, this time has just sped past. There were several other subjects I was hoping to cover, but we've, we've got to get out. We've got to go do the some filming. Nice. And we have, uh, you know, we only have a few days left where well, we are. Well, you've got an expert. He should be able to find like six or seven grizzly bears. <laughs> like, oh, and, and a good luck charm. <laughs> and the good luck charm. Pressure's no. on. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have one heck of an afternoon, boys. <laughs> well, thank you to Luke Van Der Venen for being on our podcast today. And I uh, hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have and found it as informative as we have. And uh, no matter what platform you're on, uh, please feel free to show us some love and give us a positive rating, a thumbs up, five stars. It helps us to continue to do what we love to do here in the field and to bring more podcasts your way. Until then, uh, you can find us at wildandexposed.com and get outside and enjoy the outdoors. Talk soon.